0: I think we're, we're all um, used to the expression, or we've heard of the expression, uh, between a rock and a hard place, right? It's uh, a great expression that probably some of us have found ourselves in, in our times of life. It, it's interesting, it actually goes back to, uh, I think it, to Homer's The Odyssey, is where it originated from, this expression. But to be trapped between a rock and a hard place, it's not where anybody particularly wants to be, right? Because it suggests, you have two choices, neither of which are particularly uh, appealing. But what about the opposite about that? Have you, have you ever been stuck with two choices that are really good? And the, the dilemma is not about turning one or the other down, but it's like, which one do I choose? It's almost a harder decision, actually, because you really, there's this fear, you know, the fear of missing out right, that we're all worried about. It's like, which do I choose? Because if I choose this, then that means I can't have this, but that's really good. and You know, one of the best examples I can think of for this kind of dilemma that we've probably all experienced is just in a restaurant, right? When you're looking at the food menu and you see a couple of items that both look absolutely delicious, but you're really torn. Because on the one hand, part of you is like, you're really feeling some red meat today, Right? Like, I want to, that filet mignon looks really good. Oh, but they also have the chicken with the lemon sauce, which I love. Which do I choose? And you're back and forth, you know, and if you're really kind of sly and you're really smart, what you do is you're trying, you know, if you're with your, your wife or your husband or whoever, you try to convince them to get the other dish, right? The chicken looks really good. I think I'm going with the beef, but you know, you should try the chicken, it's great. You know, but that, that, that place of being uh, stuck between two really good options is, is kind of where we see Paul in the first half of this scripture this morning. Um, and it, it's, a, it's an interesting dialogue for Paul, even though he kind of, he knows which way he wants to go. Uh, but we're going to be looking a little bit at this, that this morning. Um, but before we do, I just want to uh, recap a little bit on where we've come from so far. So we are in a sermon series on the book of Philippians. And this is the, the third part of that sermon. So on week one, what I, what I tried to do is establish a little bit of a foundation of, of when approximately the letter was written, where Paul is, uh, and the circumstances. So probably the letter was written around 62 AD-ish, somewhere like that. We know Paul is in prison, and he's probably in the city of Rome, possibly Ephesus. But he's in prison, and he's writing this letter uh, to the church in Philippi. Um, In the second week, we try to establish uh, what we call the relentless gospel. You remember a couple of weeks ago, I was talking about how the gospel itself is unstoppable. Despite all the opposition that it has faced over the centuries, there's something about the gospel that cannot be stopped. And Paul is a prime example of this. While even being in prison, he's still managing to talk to his imprisonment, to the jailers, and the praetorium guard, and they know he's in chains for Christ. One of the other things that we set out in the introduction to this series was some of the themes you can expect to see in the book of Philippians, right? And some of these themes are the theme of joy, joy permeates this letter, the message of the gospel, but then also themes such as uh, unity, the unity of the church, how important that is. And then there's also the theme of suffering. So as we come to the third part of our series this week, we have an interesting passage because it's really, there's two kind of parts to the passage. This verses 20 through 26. And then at chapter twi- uh, sorry, verse 27, there's a, there's a pivot, which we'll talk about when we get to it. But first of all, I want to deal with that first part of the scripture that we just read this morning. So remember, Paul is in prison, and he still doesn't know if he's going to be executed or not. He's in prison, and he knows there's a very fair chance that he may be executed. He might be released, but he may also be executed. And so what he's doing here is, Paul, he's kind of um, contemplating scenarios and possibilities about what it would mean to continue living, what it would mean if he's executed, And when we get to verse 21, this kind of is the central verse of this passage here. In a sense, it really sums up what Paul's talking about. And what does he say? He says that very famous, very famous line, For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. That's one of the gems in Philippians I mentioned in our first week, that it has a number of very memorable verses that people memorize and, and speak over themselves because they are so powerful. For me to live uh, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. That sums up Paul's dilemma. And what we get following through verse 26 is Paul's inner debate, if you like. It's his soliloquy. He's, he's sort of talking about the pros and the cons of like, well, if I, if I continue to live, then it means this. But if I die, it means this. In a sense... It's this maxim that Paul has, it's, his, it's like his life verse. You know, some people they, they have what they call a life verse, and it's the, the verse they believe that is really important to their life. And uh, what it essentially does is it gives us Paul's perspective on life and death. It gives us Paul's perspective on life and death. You know, I reckon if, uh, if Paul was into tattoos this might be one he'd get tattooed somewhere, right? You know, to live is Christ, to die is gain. You know, he'd probably have a, you know, somewhere like that or, you know, kind of make a sleeve out of it or something like that. But it was that important to Paul, this, this, uh, this maxim. So what does it mean? What does it mean to, to live is Christ, to die is gain? Well, if you look at the original Greek, which I'm sure you all do on a regular basis, but I do because it's it's part of what I have to do, right? It's actually part of what I love to do. But if we look at the original gr- uh, Greek that this was written in, um, it actually it literally reads this: "To live Christ, to die, gain." So that little verb is, is is not actually there. It was it's filled in by the trans. But that lack of connecting verb in the original, I think, what it did is it prompted me to think of all the ways. Of what it means to live involving Christ. And so I started to put in some of my own verbs and own words. And certain words came to mind. So we have to live is Christ. What about to live depends on Jesus? To live means Jesus? To live honors Jesus? How about to live glorifies Jesus? You can fill in the blank here. But by saying to live is Christ, Paul is revealing what he's showing us is, is that his whole life is about Jesus. Everything he does and the motives and purposes of his existence are guided by Jesus. He lives and breathes Jesus. And the way Paul looks at it is like if, he, if he's allowed to live, if he's released then he will continue to serve Christ and the gospel. That he will be able to help the churches like Philippi grow in their spiritual maturity. But he's torn because he knows that given that option, he'd actually rather be executed because then he would be with Jesus. And of the two, given the choice, that is kind of more more desirable. There's actually nothing more amazing, more powerful than to be with Jesus. We might think, well, I don't really feel like being killed. But in Paul's mind, that it is his gain for him, to be with Jesus. So in a sense, though, that Paul's summary of life and death, that should actually be a huge uh, encouragement to us. Because it is literally a win-win. If you notice the title of this sermon this morning, it's a win-win, because that maxim, to live is Christ, to die is gain, is a win-win for anybody who has put their faith and trust in Jesus. Paul tells us that living your life with Jesus leads to the greatest happiness and fulfillment. And more, after you've lived this life well, you then have eternity with Jesus. So it really is a win-win when you walk with Christ in your life. Let me try to flesh this out by showing you the alternative. Okay? So there is another message and creed that the world teaches us. See, the the world has its own gospel right now. has its own story that it thinks is the good story. And in many ways, it's in opposition to the message of the gospel. And it is basically, it is the religion of what you could call secularism or atheism or any of those, the children of secularism, such as naturalism, materialism. And these teaches a, a slightly different gospel, don't they? You see... Secularism, what it does is it teaches us that the real key to happiness and contentment is to be found within ourselves. That's what we're told. If we can only look deep enough within ourselves, we will find the real me. You'll find the real you. And that's ultimately what will bring you true freedom and true happiness. When you discover who you truly are by looking within yourself, then you can live an authentic life. Then you can be true to yourself. And not only does does secularism teach you that true freedom and identity are found within yourself, it also tells us and sort of indoctrinates us with the belief that this is all there is. It says, folks, this, this, this world... This physical world as you see it, that's all there is. And so the best thing you can do is live your life for yourself. Get as much as you can, advance as far as you can in your career because that's all you have. And then once you die, that's it. you cease to exist and all you've worked for means nothing. Ah, not so, says the secularist. Of course my life has meaning. It's about leaving a legacy. It's about leaving the world a better place than when I came into it. It's about leaving something for my children. But if we really follow the thread to its logical conclusion, the idea that we're just a collection of atoms and molecules that that happen by to produce intelligent life that ultimately has no meaning or purpose or design, what does it matter if you leave a legacy? we try to make a difference in the world because sooner or later, and you can go as far into the future as you want, sooner or later it will all be over. It will all cease to exist. And it will all have been for nothing. A blip on the timeline of existence. Anybody feeling uplifted yet? It's not it is the message, message, is it? Of course it's not. Because it tells you you mean nothing. You have no purpose. Nobody designed you. You're, a, you're a, a, a chance accident. And once you're gone, that's it. You're over. You cease to exist. And it pervades society more and more. And the sad thing is that it's been spoon fed to the younger generations. Sure, it's painted with a veneer of optimism, right? And this idea of, you can be anything you choose to be. You can be anything you want to be. But it's an empty promise. In a sense, if the, if the Christian maxim is, to live is Christ, to die is gain, an atheistic secularism offers a depressing alternative, a different maxim that might be said something like this, to live is for yourself, to die is oblivion. I know which one I'd rather choose. One of the clever things about secularism, though, is that it it deceives us because it likes to portray itself as neutral. Okay? You know, it's the great myth of secularism um, that it is a neutral force based on logic and reason. You know, people who define themselves as secularists or atheists and this this kind of thing say, well, it's just obvious this is all we have. And people who believe in spiritual forces and the fairy god in the sky are just deluded. This is just a natural world we live in and everything can be explained by science and if it can't be, one day it will be able to be. Let's forget that's a faith statement. That's another thing. But secularism likes to say we're neutral. We don't have an agenda. We just work off facts. But we know fully well that's not quite true, is it? Just the other day I was reading a story about how a middle school in Virginia... Is banning the mention of the name Jesus at their Christmas concert in any of their songs in case it offends their increasingly diverse student population. It's funny, in, a, in, a, in a, a bid to be more tolerant, they're actually being intolerant. But that agenda right there is emerging from secularism, which says they're trying to even the playing field, but they're not. There is an agenda. But there's, like I said, there's a hopelessness that underlies that, doesn't it? That is contrary to the gospel, because the gospel is a message, ultimately, of hope. We're living in an age that has, among other things, been called the rise of the nones. And the nuns is a label for those who consider themselves non-religious, or non-affiliated. And this would include um, atheists and agnostics and people who don't know what they think. According to an American family survey that was done last year, 2017, it says 34% of the US population now identifies as a non. Yeah, I was surprised by that as well. It's only one study, but that's over a third. Over a third of the population. And the rise in the percentage is particularly high, and it's driven by millennials and the younger generations that are emerging okay, by the way if you're, if you're a millennial you guys are already old okay now it's, it's generation Z now okay that's the next generation I don't know where they're gonna go after Z because we're kind of run out of letters haven't we but I'm sure they'll come up with something but it's it's very prevalent in a sense the younger you are and the times you are being uh, raised in are leading to less and less belief in God Okay, and, and we can all see the relationship here, right? Because as there has been a, um, a, a, a coming off of belief in God, there is a rise in depression, in hopelessness, in loneliness, in opioid use. I don't think that's a coincidence, folks. I really don't. But this is why the message of the gospel has never been more important When Paul declares to live is Christ and to die is gain, he's telling us there is hope. There is something to live for. Something greater than yourself. Something that gives you eternal purpose and hope rather than temporal and fleeting things that can only be found in this world. To live for Christ, he tells us, uh, is how we find who we truly are in him. You see, we don't discover ourselves by looking within. We discover ourselves by looking without. When we look outwards, when we look to God, and when we look to others, do you realize you learn so much about yourself when you interact with other people? How you react to them? How you react to people you don't agree with? Can you still love them when they have completely differing views to you? Can you still extend grace to them? We don't discover ourselves by becoming introverted and looking for some mythical gem that's located inside us. No, we find who we are through Jesus. It's not some new age path to liberation that will lead us there. Without Jesus, you can never truly know yourself. I mentioned in my prayer, we were created and made by him and for him. And therein you will find your purpose and meaning in life. It begins with finding And knowing Jesus. It's why actually discovering who Jesus is is the most important thing you can do in your life. Do you realize that? You might think the most important thing you can do in your life is your job or to raise your family a certain way or any number of things. But you know what? No, the most important thing you can do in your life is find and know Jesus. He's the source of life, of all goodness. A.W. Tozer said something to the words of this effect. He said, what you think about God is the most important thing about you. What you think about God is the most important thing about you. And it's true. Your views of God and how you view God or how you don't view God, how you perhaps believe he doesn't exist, that defines who you are. Jesus is the source of life. And so... That's what it means to say to live is Christ. You know, another way of framing it might be like this. Without Christ, you are not truly living. You're sleepwalking through life, hoping somebody will slap you and wake you up. So how do you live life? How do you live your life with Christ at the center? Well, in verse 27, Paul, he gives us a transition. Remember I mentioned there's kind of two parts to this, to this uh, scripture we read this morning. And he, he does a pivot here because so far, <clears throat> verses 1 through 26, Paul has basically been given an update to the Philippians. He's been telling them what's going on, his situation in the prison. And now what he does is he, he turns around now and he addresses the Philippians and the issues they are dealing with and struggling with. And then in verse 27, he drops this bomb. He says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. And so a question I want to ask you this morning is, do you think, do you conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel? Maybe sometimes, right? But if you're anything like myself, I would have to be honest and say, yeah, only sometimes. There are times when I do not conduct myself in a, in a way that is worthy of the gospel. It's often in the car. But you know what I'm saying? It's, it's a very convicting sentence, isn't it? Whatever happens. So he's not saying, you know, when life's good, sure, act like a good, nice, generous Christian. No, he's saying whatever happens. Come rain or shine, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Um, that word conduct in the Greek has political overtones and it's actually tied to citizenship. So remember in our, in our first seminar of the series I, I said that Philippi was a, a Roman colony. It had been populated <clears throat> by Roman veterans, by Octavius. And so it was full of very proud Roman citizens. And it was a, a Rome away from Rome, right? And people really um, were proud of their Roman citizenship. And so really, Paul's, he's, he's, he's very clever here. He's putting a little jab in there uh, or, or reminding them that, hey, your Roman citizenship is not as important as your heavenly citizenship. And so what he's saying is, behave in a way that lines up with the fact that you are a citizen of heaven. Do you know that? That if, if you put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ, you are actually a future citizen of heaven. How cool is that? I'm sure you've all been to some really nice cities in your time. Jack was telling me he'd he'd been to, to Toronto last weekend. I've heard it's an amazing city. But we actually have citizenship to the most amazing city in the in existence. And when you give your life to Christ, essentially what you do is you get the passport. Here's the passport. And when you die and it's time to to go and meet Jesus, that's when you go through customs. And you know what they're going to ask you like they do at customs? Do you have anything to declare? And what you declare right there and then will determine where you go. And you're going to declare, yes, I love Jesus. He is my Lord and Savior. But we are citizens of a heavenly dwelling, folks. And Paul's saying, "Act like your citizens of that place." After that, he goes on to to paint a picture of unity that is essential to the church. Remember, unity is one of the themes of Philippians. Listen to what he says here. He says, "Stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel." Do you see that theme of unity there? That is supposed to define the church. You know, Jesus prayed in uh, John's Gospel that we would be one, the church would be one, just as he is one with the Father. We don't really find that in churches, though, do we? We don't really find that oneness and that unity that is so important to the body of Christ. In fact, the World Christian Encyclopedia tells us that there are over, wait for it, 33,000 denominations in the world. 33,000 that's just Christian denominations or people who label themselves Christians we are really good aren't we at creating divisions and barriers and things that separate us and we see that today of course in the divisive nature of, of where we are in this country but human beings we love to divide don't we that's another reason the gospel is so countercultural, because it's saying don't divide, unify Learn to forgive. Learn to love one another despite your differences. That's what a healthy church looks like. You know, I'm not expecting everybody in this church to think alike. I know we have, I'm sure we have Republicans, Democrats, Independents, you name it. And I'm sure that we all have slightly different theological perspectives on various issues. But Jesus and Paul, they're not saying, well, you know, therefore, you can't all coexist in the same church. No, he's saying, live as one, be one, contend as one for the faith of the gospel. Here Paul's asking, well, why should we be unified? Well, it's to contend for the faith of the gospel and as to not be intimidated by those who oppose you. That's an interesting sentence. So, one, he's saying, we need to contend for the faith. You know what contend means? It's one of those words I use a lot, and I was sort of like, I need to understand this word more importantly here. And, and again, in this text, contend has uh, an idea of an athlete competing for something. So we're to compete and fight for the gospel. And further, we're not to be intimidated by those who oppose you. So notice, notice here that Paul, Paul assumes that there will be opposition to the message of the gospel. It's not, he's not saying if, he's essentially saying when. And in fact, he's already experienced plenty of it, hasn't he? He's in jail, he's in prison for the gospel. But he's trying to prepare us for the fact that we too will face opposition. If you are really living your life to promote the gospel, you're going to face opposition. And yes, suffering. There it is. That theme of suffering again. You know, if you've been a a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ for any length of time, you'll realize that the path of a Christ follower will involve suffering. Listen to what verse 29 says. It says, For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. Listen to that. It has been granted to you on behalf of Christ. It's almost like Paul's saying, you know what, this is a gift from God. This is a grace from God. Why would we think of it like that? Nobody wants to suffer, right? I don't want to suffer. Do you want to suffer? We're naturally averted to suffering because we're creatures of comfort, aren't we? We love comfort. But what Paul's saying is that yes, to follow Jesus and become more Christ-like will cost you. And you see, part of that is being conformed to the image of Christ. And what did Christ do? He suffered for us. And so, what Paul's actually saying is, it is a privilege and an honour bestowed on us God, by God to build us and strengthen us in our faith. That's how we get stronger a lot of the times, folks. through adversity. He's saying, if my son suffered, so will you too. But the rewards, they far outweigh the cost. Remember, to live is Christ, to die is gain. It's a win-win. You can't lose. So what do we take away from today's message? What do we take away from the scripture? Well, I've got five points for you. Number one, live your life for Jesus Christ take steps to make him more central in your life rather than an appendage or an add-on that is tacked on to the end of everything else you do. We too often do that, folks. We call ourselves Christians and we say, yes, yeah, so Jesus is my Lord and Savior, but you know what? He's more like an add-on to our lives. Well, if I had a bit of time left, I guess I'll, I'll pray for a few moments. Or, well, you know what? If I'm not too tired, I guess I'll look at a little bit of Scripture today. Now, that's not making him central. That's making him secondary. Number two, get to know him. Get to know him. Jesus wants a relationship with you. He is a personal God who cares and loves you more than anybody else possibly could. How do you do that? It's actually far simpler than you think simple but difficult. Pray. You pray, you converse with Jesus. You share your cares. You share your praise with him. And then study his word. Study this. Read the gospels. Apply the words of Jesus to your life. It will change your life. Number three, don't fear death. We liked, we, we've kind of um, sterilized ourselves and removed ourselves from the idea of death, right? Because it's a scary prospect. Back in Paul's time, everybody was familiar with death. They saw plenty of people die, their own relatives. Death was not this alien concept or or force to people. We don't have to fear death. Sure, we don't want to hasten it or embrace it. But we don't need to fear it because we know that to die is gain. When our time comes, we will be with Jesus. Number four, live your lives in a manner worthy of the gospel. People are watching us. The world is watching us and how we conduct ourselves. And they are waiting to pounce and say, Ha! This person calls themselves a Christian, but look what they just did. Look what they just said. Ha! What a bunch of hypocrites. We need to try harder to live lives that are worthy of the gospel. And lastly, remember that maxim. Memorize it. Declare it over yourself. To live is Christ. To die is gain. It is a win-win. Let's pray, Father. We thank you that when we give you reign over our lives, when we declare that Lord, you are sovereign over our lives, we are declaring, Lord, that you are the central thing in our lives, and we are declaring that we want to live our lives for you, Lord. I know it's, it's easier said than done. We all struggle with trying to live our lives for you because life is complicated. It's full of ups and downs. Yes, it is full of suffering. It's also full of joy. And I just ask, Lord, that you would strengthen each and every one of us in our walk with you. You're such a gentle and gracious and loving God that will tug at us, will pull us back toward yourself when we drift away that whispers in our ears, reminds us how much we are loved by you. And I just pray, Lord, that you would guide us, each and every one of us. Put that conviction in our heart that you need to be central, that our lives need to be devoted to you. It doesn't mean our lives are going to be boring or unexciting. Quite the opposite. When we truly give ourselves over to you, Lord, you will give us the most joy-filled, fulfilling life possible. Because we know you are the source of all joy, of all love, of all fulfillment. And so I ask for that today, Lord, over, over our church and over everybody here today. We thank you, Lord. We know you're faithful. And we give this all to you through your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.